We'll be in Exodus chapter 13 and the beginning of 14. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, the words will be on the screen behind me. Also, in, your, uh, in the church app, you will find a sermon listening guide that has the scripture printed, also an outline and some helpful application questions. You can follow along that way as well. Exodus chapter 13, starting in verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Paharath, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. In the 1969 novel, The Poseidon Adventure, the ocean liner, the SSS Poseidon, hits a, a major storm on the seas. And major storm, the lights go out on the ship, smoke starts to fill the rooms. There's absolute chaos, absolute confusion on the ship. And it's that time that the ship actually flips over. Flips over, there's air that's trapped in the hull, so it floats basically upside down. But in the midst of all the confusion, most of the passengers on board, in an, away, in an attempt to escape, begin following the steps to the top of the deck. Problem is, the top of the deck is 100 feet below the water, and many of them drown. But there were a few that did what didn't make sense. They went opposite of the way that most people were going. They climbed up to the hull and they got up into the hull where the air was and, and they were banging on the hull. And so the rescuers that came heard the banging and were able to cut them out so that they could go to safety. We live in very disorienting times. Our world, our country has been flipped over, turned upside down, so to speak from a pandemic to racial tension to civil unrest to a heated presidential election to division to violence. On a cultural level, there's a lot that does not make sense right now. And I would say probably on a personal level, there may be things in your life that does not make sense. What we typically do when life doesn't make sense is a combination of control and good strategy 
and relief. And all of these human-centered strategies typically make things worse or make things even more confusing. So the question becomes, what do you need when life doesn't make sense? What do you need? First, a God who knows best. A God who knows best. Look at verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. Verse 18, but God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. The most obvious, the most efficient, the most direct, the shortest way to the land of Canaan that God had promised his people was this coastal highway. In fact, there's a documentation in, in, in Egypt, Egyptian documents that tell of two slaves, runaway slaves that were trying to get out of Egypt. And when they ran away, their way of escape was the shortest way. It was this coastal highway. It was the shortest route. In fact, if God's people would have followed that shortest route to the land of Canaan, they would have arrived in less than two weeks. Not the 40 years it ended up taking them wandering through the wilderness. God knew they weren't ready to fight. And that way along the coastal highway would have been dangerous. There would have been battles. And he knew that they weren't ready to fight. Verse 17, he says, as soon as they would have seen battle or danger, they would have turned right back to Egypt, back to what was known, back to what was comfortable. Verse 18 says they were equipped for battle, but they weren't ready to wage war. And God knew this. And so he took them south, away from Canaan, away from the land that he was promising them. He took them south into the wilderness. It wasn't the most obvious way. It wasn't the shortest way. It wasn't the most convenient way or the most expedient way or the most comfortable way. But it was the best way because it was God's way. And God's way is always best even when it doesn't seem to make sense because God knows best. The barracks where Corey Tinboom and her sister Betsy were kept in that uh, Nazi concentration camp Ravensbrück. The barracks where Corey and Betsy were kept were overridden, they were overpopulated, uh, and they were infested with fleas. They were infested with fleas. Betsy and Corey were able to smuggle a Bible in to the, to the barracks. And it was there in the midst of this flea-infested barracks that, that Betsy was reading the scriptures and came across the scripture that said that we're to give thanks in all things. And so she began thanking God for the fleas. And her sister Corey said, no way. Not going there. But eventually Corey got to that place where she began to Thank God for the fleas. Thank God for this incredible discomfort. And what happened over the, the next several months was, was wonderful, but also very curious. Over the next couple months, the guards never came into their barracks, which meant that the women didn't get assaulted, and which meant the unthinkable happened, that Corey and her sister Betsy started hope holding open Bible studies and open prayer meetings 
in a Nazi concentration camp. And it was over those several months that a number of women came to know Christ. And it wasn't until afterwards that Corey realized what had happened, that those fleas and the discomfort of those barracks that God knew best. And he kept the guards away that the gospel could go forth. God knows best. You and I watch life through a knot hole in the fence. Think about a wooden fence. You and I see life through a knot hole, which means we see what's right in front of us. But God sees over the fence. He sees what's coming. He sees what's going. In fact, he directs what's coming. And he directs what's going. As you look through the knot hole in the fence, what doesn't make sense in your life? What is frustrating? What is inconvenient? What is despair producing? What leaves you hopeless? What is painful? What's uncomfortable? Do you believe that this is God's best for you? Romans 8.28 says, and we know that for those who love God, all things, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. What do you need when life doesn't make sense? First, you need a, you need a God who knows best. But second, you need a God who is present. A God who is present. And God's presence in this passage surfaces through two images. Bones, and pillars. Bones and pillars. Look, look first at the significance of the bones in verse 19. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. Centuries earlier, as Joseph was coming to the end of his life, as he was about to die, he said this to his brothers in Genesis chapter 50, verse 24. I am about to die, but God will visit you. God will visit you and bring you up out of this land, right, the land of Egypt, to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Joseph was simply hanging on to the promise that God had spoken to his great-great-grandfather, Abraham. And it was the covenant that God promised to Abraham. It was a covenant that said, I'll be your God and you will be my people. It was a promise of relationship. It was a promise of presence. And so Moses takes Joseph's bones out of Egypt to carry them to the promised land because he believed God's promise of his presence. But God doesn't just promise his presence. He delivers his presence. He delivers it. Look at verse 21. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Now notice what this verse says. It says that the Lord went before them 
in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. God didn't just send a pillar to guide them from afar. He was actually in the pillar, meaning that the pillar of fire and cloud represented his very presence. He was with them as he guided them on this journey that at this point wasn't making much sense to them, but he was with them in it. You know, it's easy to read this and wish that God could give us the same guidance today, isn't it? If only I could have a bright cloud tell me which college I should go to. Or if only I could have a a bright pillar of cloud tell me which job I should take. Or a bright pillar of cloud that would tell me who I'm supposed to marry. We read this and go, where's the pillar today? Well, the reality is that God gives us something much better, something much better. Where do we see the pillar of fire appear again in the scriptures? Well, God gave his people, uh, in order that they would remember God's guidance through the wilderness, the 40 years by the pillar, God gave them an annual feast called the Feast of Tabernacles. And it was an annual remembrance of what God had done when he guided them through the wilderness by the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. And at this annual feast in the city where it took place, they would put up these huge torches of fire to remind them of the pillar of fire. In John chapter eight, when God's people are celebrating this annual feast, centuries and centuries later, we're in the New Testament at this point, as they're celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles in the city, and there are torches of light everywhere in the city, it's at that moment that Jesus stands up and he says, I am the light of the world. And then we read in Acts chapter two at Pentecost, after Jesus resurrected from the dead, ascended into heaven, we read that little flames of fire came and rested on the disciples. Little torches, little pillars of individual fire came and rested on the disciples. And the scripture says they were filled, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Look what's happening here. You've got the pillar of fire in front of the Israelites as they're leaving Egypt, but it only gets better when the pillar of fire becomes flesh and bones. The presence of God now becomes flesh and bones in Jesus Christ, which only gets better at Pentecost, when the very presence of God becomes the person of Christ dwelling in you and in us by the Holy Spirit. John 14, 17 says the Holy Spirit dwells with you and will be in you. 1 Peter 4.14 says the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So let's combine these first two points. God knows best. God knows best. Even when life doesn't make sense, we know that it's his best. The second point, God is present with us. That God is present with us to guide us on the way in what doesn't seem to make sense. 
Now, how does the Holy Spirit actually guide us? That's the question. Well, the first four verses of Exodus 14 describe how God tells Moses to turn the people back. They're headed straight to Canaan. He says, no, turn back, go to the wilderness. Go into the wilderness, Egypt's frontier, and back up against the sea so that you're sitting ducks for Pharaoh. In fact, he said, when Pharaoh sees this, he'll know we've got him, we've defeated him. And so they're sitting there in an incredibly vulnerable place, backed up against the wall, facing sure defeat in this vulnerable spot. And they get really fearful, which makes sense. And they get fearful and they, and they wanna head back to Egypt. It's that point that Moses stands up, we'll see it next week in the passage. Moses stands up before him and says, fear not. Right, fear not. Because their fear would drive them to move away from God's way and into their own way. The Holy Spirit does less of telling you where to go and more of convicting and making you aware of the fear and anxiety in your heart that will ultimately direct you away from, from God and his way. Right, the Holy Spirit in John 16, it says the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. The job of the Spirit is to convict of sin. Fear, anxiety, greed, whatever it may be. And John 16, verses 12 to 13 says the Holy Spirit guides you in all truth. So take those together. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin and then points you to the truth of God's word, to his revealed will. The Spirit points you to God's revealed will, not to his sovereign will, which only God knows and he doesn't reveal to us in advance. So imagine you're facing this decision between A and B. What does the Spirit do? What's the role of the Spirit when you're making a decision between A and B? Well, the Spirit's role is not to send you a lightning bolt or a cryptic message on a billboard, or maybe to wake you up with a strange feeling in the morning to choose A over B or vice versa. The Spirit's role, the Spirit's role is to convict you and turn you away from fear or anxiety or greed or pride that would cause you to make a decision based on those sinful feelings rather than on the Spirit and His way or God's way. So the question becomes, is fear or anxiety driving my decision to choose A or B? Is greed driving my decision to choose A or B? Is pride driving my decision to choose A or B? It's the Holy Spirit's role to reveal that to you, to make you aware of that so that you can function in faith. Let me say it this way. The Holy Spirit is less GPS. Turn right here, turn left there. And more thermostat. Which a thermostat, right, controls the temperature in a room. It starts to get really hot, cools things down. Starts to get, temperature goes down, starts to heat things up a little bit. In the same way, when you're facing a decision 
or where do I go? It's the Holy Spirit, when you're operating in fear or in anxiety, that reveals that to you, turns you from it so that you can operate in faith. Or if you're making a decision and it's really greed that is driving you, that's the motivation of your heart, it's the Holy Spirit that reveals that, turns you from it so that you can operate in faith and generosity. Or the same would be true of pride. If you're making this decision based on pride, the Holy Spirit reveals that, right? And turns you from that pride so that you can make a decision based on faith. In other words, the Holy Spirit's primary role is to reveal the motivations of your heart because that's primarily what the Word of God does. It reveals your heart motivations. Primarily reveals the motivations of your heart rather than telling you exactly where to go or what to choose. Practically speaking, let me say it this way. If you wake up one morning with a decision before you and you just have a strong feeling for A or for B, you can never be really sure if that's the Spirit speaking or if that's your fear speaking. Or is that the Spirit speaking or is that my greed speaking? Or my pride speaking? See, the Holy Spirit's less concerned about choose A, choose B. The Holy Spirit is concerned with, I want to unpack the ulterior motives in your heart, the fear, the anxiety, the greed. And when you see that and turn from it, now you're operating in faith to make a decision about A or B. So what do you need when life doesn't make sense? You need a God who knows best. You need a God who's present through his Holy Spirit. And finally, you need a God who is committed to his own glory. God's people were on their way to freedom. They had left Egypt. They were on the way of this coastal highway less than two weeks. They're gonna be in the land of Canaan. And God says, Moses, I want you to turn them around. I want you to turn them south away from Canaan. And I want you to camp them out in the wilderness with their back against the sea so that they're sitting ducks for Pharaoh. I want you to put them in a place where they're completely vulnerable, where they're backed into a corner, where there's no way out, and the only thing they can see is defeat. Now you say, why would God do such a thing to his people? Why would he do that to his people? Look at verse four. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. God backed his people into a corner, into a vulnerable place, into a place of sure defeat for his own glory. And you say, well, that sounds awfully egotistical and narcissistic. It's actually one of the most loving acts that he could do for his people. God was showing Israel, also Egypt, that he was God and that the glory of victory belonged to him alone. In fact, he would do this years later when Christ, when he would send his son to the cross. As Christ was going to the cross, Jesus was being backed into a corner. He was trapped. He was facing sure death. And yet what seemed to be sure defeat to the Romans, to his enemies, to even his own disciples turned out to be victory 
See, to the world, the cross was shame, it was weakness, it was defeat. And yet to God, the cross was victory and the cross was glory. Colossians 2, 15 says it this way, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them by the cross. The greatest gift that God can give you is to put you in a situation where it is impossible for you to take the credit or receive the glory. And the reason for that is because we are natural boasters. We boast. We're really, really good at it. We boast of our glory. We boast of our success. We boast of our strategy. We, we boast of our goodness. We boast of our victories. And yet the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 6.14, but far be it from me to boast, except in the cross, of our Lord Jesus Christ. To the world, the cross was weakness and shame. To God, the cross was victory and glory. When the Apostle Paul was backed into the corner himself, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, when the Apostle Paul was backed into a corner and put in a place of sure defeat and vulnerability and weakness, through this physical ailment in his body. We don't know what it was. But it was of such seriousness to Paul and it put him in such a compromised and weakened and vulnerable position that he pleaded with God three times to take it away. God, take this away from me. Three times. And here's how God responds to Paul. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul responds by saying, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power and the glory of Christ may rest upon me. What do you need when life doesn't make sense? You need a God that is committed to his own glory. In the same way that the planets need the sun, right? The gravity, the glory, the weight of the sun to keep them in orbit, to keep them in order, right? It's the sheer gravity of the sun that keeps order in the universe. God's glory is what you need at the center. And God's glory is primarily manifest through the cross of Jesus Christ. The glory of the cross is what, at the center, reorders your loves, rearranges your priorities, right? brings order to your life. You say, well, how? How do I keep the glory of God at the center of my life? How do I do that? Same way as Paul, by boasting in your weaknesses. By boasting in your weaknesses, and yet we naturally do just the opposite, don't we? We hide our weaknesses and we display our strengths. You go to a job interview, you hide your weaknesses, you display your strengths. And when you do that, when you hide your weaknesses and you display your strengths, 
That's the means by which you, your glory is at the center. But when you are transparent with your weaknesses, when you don't hide your weaknesses, you boast in your weaknesses, that's the means by which God's glory is at the center, which brings order to your life. William Carey was the great missionary pioneer in India. And it was at the end of his life, he was actually on his deathbed, that a man by the name of Alexander Duff went to visit William Carey. He admired William Carey. He was just a, a huge admirer of his missionary career and what he had done in India. And so he shows up to William Carey's deathbed. And Dr. Carey says to Mr. Duff, would you pray with me? So they prayed together. And when they got done praying, Alexander Duff started to leave. And then he heard William Carey's feeble voice calling him back. This is what William Carey said to Alexander Duff. Mr. Duff, you have been speaking about Dr. Carey, Dr. Carey. When I am gone, say nothing about Dr. Carey. Speak about Dr. Carey's Savior. It is through your Savior, Jesus Christ that God has proven that his way is best and that he knows best. It's through your Savior, Jesus Christ, that God has revealed and proven and shown his presence in you by the Holy Spirit. It's through your Savior, Jesus Christ, that God has shown and proved that he is committed to his own glory, which is your good. Let's pray. Father, we confess the so many ways that we boast. And it's usually in times that life doesn't make sense that we even increase our boasting because we're convinced that when life doesn't make sense, there's something we can control or there's some strategy we can employ or there's some success that we have to achieve. So we become boasters because it's just uncomfortable to be in a place where life doesn't make sense. But oh, Father, would you remind us that in the moments that life doesn't make sense, that you know best and that your way is always best. And would you remind us that you are present, that you're present with us, guiding and leading and revealing those motivations of fear and anxiety and greed and pride that can grip our hearts. Father, would we be quick to boast about our weaknesses, to not hide them, so that the power and glory of Jesus Christ could rest upon us. Father, thank you for the Lord's Supper. Pray that as we enjoy this meal, that your spirit would work in a powerful way to convict of sin and to assure us of righteousness, to assure us of grace and to assure us of forgiveness. We pray this all in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.